Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. What are we doing this morning? We're considering the very last week in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it look, it is lovely just to picture the scenes in your mind and you will be quite overwhelmed because when you think <clears throat> the one that we've been remembering this morning in his glory and in his exaltation and in his place at the right hand of God and yet you read in the Gospels of how he humbled himself and as a man, as a man in the flesh, he walked the streets of Galilee and Nazareth and we've seen how in the last six months he has been taking that road upward to Jerusalem and he is literally to now entering into the city and you wonder at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is actually going to die. As a true priest, he's going to offer that one final sacrifice for sins. Keep in mind that we realized last time we spoke last week that the Father has given everything into his hands, the whole program of God, the whole program of redemption. It's now in his hand. And as the faithful and true servant of Jehovah, he is going to carry out to its fullness that program and the work which he has been given to do. We come to the first day of the Lord Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem, the beginning of the last week of his life. Only eight days later will be the Passover, and that very city whose gates he is now entering in verse 28 of Luke 19 will be shut against him, and he will be crucified, put to shame, rejected outside that city wall. Here we are, verse 28, that triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into Jerusalem. And when he had thus spoken, he went up before, ascending up to Jerusalem. came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, bring him hither. If any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord has need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? They said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus. And they cast their garments on the colt. They set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even to the mount, now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, 
Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees from among the multitudes said, Master, rebuke thy disciples. He said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. There it is. Now, as I read it, I'd like, I hope you have just been thinking of this incredible picture. You know, you get it in your mind. The Lord Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, the city of the great king, David's city, the city that has been so prominent in all the promises and prophecies and purposes of God. And we see him as he takes the colt, the fold of an ass, seated as it were on a donkey. And they take their garments and they put it on the donkey and the Lord sits on them. Then they take their garments and they spread them all over the road, you know, so that the donkey with the Lord on it walks over those garments, almost like the ancient equivalent of a red carpet, if you like. And then they cut down the palm trees and they take the branches and they're waving them in the air. And there are, it's a, a scene of rejoicing and joy and jubilation. That's what it really is. They are praising God with loud voices, it says, for all the mighty works which they had seen. And there's no doubt about the fact they certainly had seen mighty works for some three and a half solid years. They'd seen the demons destroyed. They'd seen the sick that were healed, the dead that were raised, the lame that were made to walk, the blind that could see. They'd heard the gospel preached to the poor. They'd seen deliverance come to the captives. They'd seen broken-hearted being healed and the oppressed being set at liberty. They had heard declared the acceptable year of the Lord. And they are thrilled at the climax. At last he's come to Jerusalem. And they say those lovely words, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Praise, peace in heaven and Glory in the highs. It's a wonderful scene. It's a wonderful scene of celebration and joy and happiness that his followers and many disciples are participating in. The king has come. Right. And they're quoting, actually, from Psalm 118. It's very significant. That's the psalm that they're quoting from. That very same psalm, in one week's time, is going to be sung at the end of the preparation for the Passover. Do you remember when it says of the Lord Jesus in the upper room, when they sung a hymn or sung a psalm, they went out to the Mount of Olives. At the end of that evening, they took Psalm 118 and they sang it. It's the same psalm. And there's tremendous words there. Remember, the Lord is just going out to Gethsemane and to Calvary. He's going to die. And in that psalm says the words, the stone which the builders have rejected have become the headstone of the corner. He sang with them, you know. I wonder if he actually, as the one presiding at the Passover meal, 
Did he commence the song? Did he lead the singing? After all, he is over the service of the song. I hear his voice, the stone, which the builders have rejected. Calvary is just around the corner, a few hours away, to become the headstone of the corner. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the horns of the altar. Can you think of what that would have meant to him? I shall not live but die and declare the wonderful works of the Lord. Can you see it on the night of his betrayal, just before Gethsemane, Gabbatha and Golgotha? He's singing those words. And in this last week of his life, the people are around him and they're saying, quoting from the very same song, psalm, and they're saying, Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. See, you see, this whole scene is incredibly significant. The Lord Jesus riding upon a colt, even the foal of an ass. And you say, well, I don't get quite the significance of that. Look, it is incredibly significant. Uh, You might think of a donkey, for instance, as being an animal of not great significance. You must understand that the ass, the donkey here as described, was actually the creature which was specifically bred for royalty in the traditions of the past. We may not realize that. You know, we prize horses and we prize camels, but donkeys were actually bred prior to this specifically as a beast which is preserved and reserved for the use by royalty. Right? And it was a mark of a kingly thing. And the voice is, according to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, in which the prophet predicted very clearly, many years before, this was exactly how the Messiah would come to Israel in his first coming to Jerusalem. Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. I can hear it in the Messiah. I can't help it. I, if you know the Messiah, you can hear them sing it in your, oh, your, you know, your spine tingles when you hear it. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. That's Hosanna. Save now. That's the cry of Hosanna. Adoration. Save now. Having salvation. He is lowly, and he is riding upon an ass, and upon the cult, the foal of an ass. Now, don't misinterpret that, by the way. You often think that it says he is lowly riding upon an ass, and that is a mark of his lowliness, that he would just ride on a beast of burden. No! All right, I've already made that clear. This is actually the passage for kings and the beast that's regal in the day that is prophesied. All right? And what they're saying is this. What he is saying is this, the king that's seated there is a king who is lowly. I want you to get that, a king that is lowly. He's coming into Jerusalem, he is mounted on a a regal carriage, as it were, he is being declared the son of David, he is being cried out to in adoration, Hosanna, save now. And they're waving their palm trees and they're rejoicing in the great works that they had seen. There is no doubt the fullness of who it is that's coming in. And there he is, but he's lowly. He is lowly. A king 
who is lowly. Can you think of one ruler in our world today who is lowly, who is bowed and humble, strong, yes, but who will come down? Tell me one that's not full of himself. Tell me one that's not declaring his wonderful deeds. Tell me one who doesn't love to beat on their own breast and declare how great they are and what they're going to do. Full of themselves. This king is lowly. You get it? What did he say? I am meek and lowly in heart. Now get the point here. When you come to the kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ is bringing in, he reveals to us much about it, but there are two things I want you to get. The first thing he reveals is here, that the king himself is lowly. Right? But secondly, later on when you talk about, when we go and have a look at um, the interview between Pilate and the Lord Jesus, they've told Pilate that he says he's king, king of the Jews. He's a king, he said. That's what they said. So Pilate says, art thou then a king? Are you a king? You know? Almost as though you don't look much like one, but you're a king. And the Lord Jesus said, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. So is that all he said? What he says next used to puzzle me, right? Because he said, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I might bear witness to the truth. And I used to think, what's that got to do with that? What he is saying is, I am a king, and the principle in my kingdom by which I reign is truth. So what have you got that distinguishes this kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? The king is lowly and the principle of reign is truth. Is that what we got today in the kingdoms of the world? What are we living with today? Men who put themselves up in defiance of God, right? Who can dictate what is right and wrong and tell the others how to live and will mock and crush them if they don't who live by lies, propaganda, deceit, the twisting of what is good, the bending of law, the misrepresentation, the whole propaganda system. Show me a kingdom in this world. Well, truth is the ruling principle. And that's the wonder of this king that's coming into Jerusalem, coming down the ascent of the olives. And it looks so strange, the Roman soldiers must have been, as they were leaning against the wall and staring thinking, oh, these Jews have gone nuts again. Look at them. <laughs> Kings, <laughs> I mean, look at our armory, look at our armour, look at our soldiers, look at our tremendous horses, look at our carriage, look at our Caesar, look at him! Destined to reign from shore to shore. The king who is lowly, whose kingdom is ruled by the principle of truth. Suddenly, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday is a most triumphant and wonderful thing as he moves in as the Messiah as declared in the way declared exactly by the prophet Zechariah having fulfilled all the roles of Messiahship the anointed one of our Lord Jesus of, our, of God our Lord Jesus Christ the prophet the priest the king now I'm going to show you something it's just from the context that's all he actually, on that first day of that week, right, on the Sabbath day it was, <coughs> of the week, coming into Jerusalem, he actually entered as prophet, priest and king. He actually did that. And they would have known it, you know, they were well acquainted 
seriously, <coughs> shall I say, well acquainted with all the imagery and all the prophecies of the past. You say, he entered as a prophet. Yes, he did. Look down at verses 41, please, that we've read. 19, verse 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. Now, let me clarify something there. This is actually the second day. It's not the first day of that last week. Now we're into the second day. On the first day, right, he came in riding upon that ass. Now, when it says here, Luke goes straight into the second day and describes a scene that happened on the second day. And on the second day, remember, he went out at night to Bethany, all right, and he slept there, and then early in the morning, he made his journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. And as you come from Bethany and over the brow of the hill, you look down and you see the great city of Jerusalem with all its history, as I said, with all its prophecy, with all its meaning and destiny and the purposes and the mind of God. And the Lord saw Jerusalem and he suddenly burst into tears. Now, when it says he wept over it, it's not the same as at the grave of Lazarus where it says that Jesus wept. You know the shortest verse in the Bible? That just meant that tears started to stream silently down his cheeks. That's what that means. That weeping is a silent weeping of tears. He saw the distress of Martha and he saw the distress of the home and he saw what death had done to humanity and mankind. And there was that genuine weeping of sympathy and of grief over what sin had done and brought into the world, you see. It wasn't just sympathy for the family circle. It was definitely that. Of course it was. But it was even more than that when he saw what death had done to all of humanity. And the tears just came silently down his cheek. But now the picture is the Lord Jesus has just gone back to Bethany. Early in the morning he's coming in on the second day of the last week of his life. And suddenly he sees the city. And he knew what it stood for. But he knew that ere a few days were past, they would take their king and they would crucify him outside the city wall. They would reach the pinnacle of their hate and the depths of their depravity when they'd say, we have no king but Caesar. And then what happens is not just silent tears, but the word is for a choking sob burst from his breast and he prophesied. See this? If you had known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things that belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. He said, if only you'd known that I was coming in the name of the Lord and there was peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If only you had known that that prayer that the psalmist gave you to pray, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, your opportunity is right now as the Prince of Peace is coming to you lowly, mounted upon that ass, even the colt, the foal of an ass. But now you will reject your opportunity and because you have deliberately rejected him, your opportunity, your understanding, your, your way in which you could find peace will be hid from your eyes. You went past the point of appeal and now you have sealed your judgment and the judgment is terrible for days shall come upon thee that your enemies will cast a trench about you. That is, in, they will encircle the city, right? And they will, call, they will form a siege and they will compass you around and they will keep you in on every side. And it did happen. 
This is the words of a prophet. This is the voice of God. Forty years later, this exactly happened. Jerusalem was surrounded. A siege was laid for six months. And shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. They shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And the voice of the prophet amidst the sobbings of the soul were heard that day in the streets of Jerusalem pronouncing that final doom. It's no wonder they thought he was Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was it? No wonder at all. He saw the future just 40 years hence when the great and mighty city would be brought to nothing. If you ever read the story of the siege of Jerusalem under Titus and his father-in-law, it is absolutely ghastly. They were surrounded for six months The gates were battered with rams. The fighting went on and on. The starvation and the hunger and the thirst were terrible. Mothers were eating their own babies in despair. And the wretched zealots of Israel would not give in. And the enemy surrounded them without. And the end of it was, there was not a stone left upon a stone in the whole of the city. And every Jew was slain and Jewess, and mother, and child, all of them annihilated. And the nation would have been annihilated. But earlier to this, some who had taken the warning of the Lord had fled to the north. Just a little handful. Can you picture a city of great and magnificent buildings? Or we think they just had a few mud huts. A few mud huts! Do you really realise that the temple that the Jews had in this day, which the Lord Jesus looked at later in a two or three days' time and said, not a stone will be left upon a stone. Do you realise it covered, that enclave covered 35 acres? Do you realise that the main building and the centre there was actually 15 storeys high? Do you realise that some of those stones were six metres long? Three metres high, four metres wide. This is some fate of engineering. This is a fantastic city. This is something to be seen as one of the capitals of the whole world. And the Lord stood there and he stared at it. And he knew what lay ahead. And as the prophet, the weeping prophet, with a sob in his voice, he pronounced what would one day happen. And the tragedy was that it would be hid from their eyes and they never knew the day of their visitation. They never knew the opportunity they had when the Lord Jesus himself was coming through the gates. That's the tragedy of a world that rejects Christ. They don't know today is the day of salvation. Now is the day of grace. Now for Brisbane, for Queensland, for Australia... For the rulers of the country, now is the day of visitation. For now is the accepted time. And now is the day when there is opportunity to be saved. And they don't know it. And there'll come a time when it's hidden from their eyes and they'll never, never see it. And all that's left is final judgment. The calamity of a soul without Christ in a Christless eternity. that's That's the awful picture that we've got here. And so the Lord is coming in now. The second day, he's weeping, and as the prophet is prophesying, the terrible nature of everything that lies ahead. 
You know, I, I couldn't help thinking of Psalm 24, where the second coming of the Lord is prophesied, and also in Zechariah 9 and 10. It's so different. You know, lift up your heads, O ye gates. That's the cry to the city. Be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord strong and mighty. He's the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. That's who he is. Look at the, look at the contrast. But now we're dealing not with triumph. We're dealing actually with tragedy. And the Lord Jesus entered the city, what? As a prophet. You see that? He also entered the city and made it very clear that he was also the priest. Now, to understand this better, you go to Mark 11. <coughs> this is how he entered. We described the physical methods that he entered, the meaning of the ass, the, the waving of the palm trees, the celebration of the last three and a half years and the mighty deeds. Now, he's entered as a king. He's entered as a prophet. You know, he entered that city and made it very clear that he was the priest. You look at chapter 11, this is amazing actually, this is really amazing. And again, I want you to get the atmosphere as it were and picture, picture what's going on in your mind. You, you've pictured him coming down the ascent of the olives in that triumphal march. You've pictured him on the second day going from Bethany and just suddenly capturing a vision of, of the city of Jerusalem and hearing his sob and the pronouncement of his prophecy. Now, now get a picture, go back. In Mark 11, Mark tells us about the same entry, the same triumphal entry. He tells us one further detail that happened on the first day, the day of the riding upon the colt, the foal of an ass, which Luke doesn't tell us, all right? Luke gives you another entry, but I'll tell you that in a minute. It says here, verse 10, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, you can hear them praising. And then it says... And Jesus entered unto Jerusalem. Of course he did. He was the king. And into the temple. There it is. He's the priest. That's why he went there. He entered into the temple. In other words, he rode that donkey into Jerusalem. And then at the end of all of that, he then turned and it were dismounted and he went into the temple. Right? This is the same day, this is the end of the first day. And when he looked round about upon all things, and eventide was come, it was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's a very serious... I've always been captivated by that verse. I can just see the Lord Jesus, fresh from that exaltation and the voice of his people, and then he quietly enters the temple. Massive, massive building. And all it says was he looked around on all things. Just looked around. It doesn't say he said anything. And it probably doesn't tell us because he probably didn't say a word. I can only imagine, and I dare be, I mean, must be careful when you imagine, what was he thinking when he looked around at that temple? It was a Sabbath day when he was there. And there were all the symbols of the ceremony and all the signs of the sacrifice. And just a week later, the Passover would be celebrated there and a lamb is going to be slain and blood is going to be shed. 
And the Lord Jesus is standing in the midst of all that ritual, meaningful ritual, and all that sacrifice, meaningful sacrifices. They all pointed one way, they pointed to him. How do you think he thought? What do you think he thought? As he stood there and thought, all this will be coming to an end in but one week's time. There'll be the last of the Passover suppers. There will be last of the sacrifices made for sin. But before that can come to an end, I must fulfill the meaning of every sacrifice and the fullness of every ceremony. I must die. And as a priest with the offering which is myself, I will make one sacrifice for sin forever and I will be able to bring my people to God. The just for the unjust will die that he might bring you and I, sinners, to God. And the priest, filled with the meaning of the sacrifice and the apprehension of Calvary, stands silently in that temple that's finally going to be left desolate because they will not have the fulfillment of the sacrifices, the ceremonies, or the ritual. He stands there for that moment in a mute sigh, mute meditation. And he thinks of what lies ahead. Then he turns and he goes out and he goes back to Bethany with his disciples where he spends the night. Whew, what a first day when you put it like that. Luke tells us he goes into the temple and he overturns the, change, the money, change, money tables of the, uh, uh, the financiers of the place. See, what he did was go back. That was the second day. He went back to that temple the second day. On the second day, it wasn't the Sabbath day. There was plenty going on. They were making their money. They were making their money in the temple by selling animals to the poor and those that didn't have them at profits, right? By taxing the people excessively and overtly in order to line their pockets. Annas made a fortune as the high priest just out of the money that came from temple taxes and temple commerce. And the Lord is absolutely angry. He says, you've made my father's house, which should be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. And he overturns the money, the, the tables of the money chambers. And he casts them all out. That's on the second day. Let me just say this in passing. I don't care whether it's Jewish re- religion or whether it's the religion of Christianity. If it's a money-spinning affair, beware. It's devilish. And it's not honoring to God. And it will always be for the exaltation of self and the misrepresentation of truth. Where there's money, there's not meekness. Where there's finance, there's not truth. All right? You can't even find an advert for a product that tells you the truth about the product. And it has invaded Christendom, I'm afraid. Money, fame, pomp. Power, misrepresentation. Nothing's changed in the 21st century as was existing exactly at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see it now? Did he enter as the king? He entered as the king. Meek and the meek king riding upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Hosanna, save now, Lord, save now, in adoration. <clears throat> and he, oh, he went in as the priest into that temple, pondering the sacrifice that he would make. And then, as the prophet, he showed what the future lay, what before them. So the Messiah has come to Jerusalem. 
He is the Lord's anointed, and the last week of his life has begun. The chapter is coming to an end. As it were, the drama of redemption is reaching its climax as the great forces of evil assemble themselves in Jerusalem and mount their plans and all their schemes. So they're going to do away with him, and they're going to see to him that he will see to it that he will die. I'll talk about that in a minute. Look, throughout this week, what in the week that we're talking about, it's really a story of contrasts. And that's how I want you to understand it and to look at it. On the one hand, you're going to see the overt, the nefarious, malicious, the vile activities of Satan. And on the other, you're going to see the majesty of the activities of God. Satan is is frantic to get what he wants. Satan is busy at his busiest in this week. He involves everything and everyone who will do his bidding. And what we're looking at, on the one hand, through the week, are the activities of darkness. You're looking at the activities of hell. And you're looking at Satan in control of his kingdom and his world. On the other hand, you're going to be looking at the activities of God and of his Christ. All things are in his hand. You're looking at the activities of heaven. You're looking at the shining of light. You're looking at the Lord Jesus moving forward to that third day, that final act when he will be perfected. What we're looking at is on the one side we're looking at God. And on looking at God we are seeing everything that is good. We are seeing the activities of divine grace. We are seeing the fullness and the emptying of divine love. We're looking at something that's going to bring triumph and it's going to bring victory and it's going to bring glory. That's on the one side. And you look on the other and what do you see? You see Satan. You see darkness. You see how he works. There's, there's hatred. The hate expressed in this last week towards the Lord Jesus is incredible. They hated me. He never spoke a true word. You will see Envy, oh, envy, they delivered him up because of envy, right? You'll see covetousness, you'll see a poor man who wants 30 pieces of silver. You'll see revenge. You'll see incredible injustice, the, the Roman system of justice, which was so revered in the world because it was so absolute and it was so clear in its principles. Justice is just bent, it's, it's twisted, Rules are changed. Laws are changed. The ones they can't change, they just throw out. They ignore and they buy the outcome without going through the normal legitimate process. You'll find the bending of injustice, the betrayal and the murder of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he going to do in that week? Get the two pictures. There's quite a bit in this. We certainly won't do it all. I'm not going to. What does he do? Well... Number one, he speaks parables. Number two, he confronts the leaders. Number three, he predicts the future destruction. Number four, he tells them he's coming back. And number five, he exhorts them to watch and pray to be ready. That's what he really does. I'm just summarizing. He speaks those parables. Remember the parable of the vineyard owner? The master that had a vineyard let it out to his servants, right? 
And then he sent servants to go and collect the fruit of the vineyard. But every time the servants came, those in the vineyard, what do they do? They stone them and they shut them out and they got rid of them. And then he says, last of all, he sent his son saying, surely they will reverence him. And what did they do? They took it. They said, this is the heir. We're going to kill him. And so those servants took the son of the master of the vineyard and they slew him. And the Lord says, what will that master do? He'll come and he'll miserably destroy that, those servants and he will give the vineyard to another. They, the Jews knew what he was saying, by the way. They said, God forbid! You know, he, they knew that Israel was the vine of the Lord. They knew that. And they knew that he was saying that your vineyard will be given to another. Oh, God forbid that, said they, as they heard him. Oh, he said, well, excuse me, you just heard Psalm 118 being sung when I came down that hill on that donkey. Did you hear it? What does it say in Psalm 118? And he quotes it to them. The stone which the builders has rejected has become the headstone of the corner. This is of the Lord's doing. It's wonderful in our eyes. But whoever falls on the stone, he gets mercy. But on whom the stone falls, gets justice. See See the force of that parable. And I want to just pick one of them. He talked about the ten virgins. He talked about the talents. He talked about the unfaithful servants. <clears throat> then he turned and he confronts the leaders, really the, the, the darkness of this world, the leaders of the darkness of this world, and he berates them ruthlessly. There's a whole chapter, 24, 25, around there in Matthew, where he exposes them. He condemns their hypocrisy. He calls them hypocrites at least six times, blind fools at least six times. He says you're both like a lot of serpents, offspring of vipers, he actually calls them. You know, he absolutely confronts them from what they are. And he says, woe to the lot of you. Oh, Lord, stop, tone it down a bit. The opposition's getting terrible. We're going to get into awful trouble because of this. Let's sort of work out a way whereby we can say it differently. Or not just now. Don't state truth now, Lord. Things are getting too black. Is that not the cry of today? Don't speak up. Don't stand for truth. Pardon me, but in the upper circles of so-called evangelical Christendom, learn how to be sort of approachable. Learn how to word what you're going to say. Don't be too confronting. The Lord had none of that. He just was there to speak truth. For the principle of his kingdom was absolute truth. Then he stands and he says, I'm telling you, when they asked him to admire their temple, he said, it's all coming to an end. And we just mentioned that in passing, didn't we? He tells them, but I am coming back. And he exhorts them to be ready. Now, that's what he is doing, right? What are the rest doing? There are two other groups left. Two. One is his enemies. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the ruler of the people, and Rome itself. They're doing one thing, right? But then there's the common people, Mr. and Mrs. Everybody. And it's quite lovely because what you've got when you read the story of the week is that the Lord Jesus left Bethany and he came down to the temple very early in the morning. Every morning he was there. But the, the common people were there before him. They were there before him, all right? And it's quite lovely in chapter 19 of Luke here. Uh, you'll find the, the mention there of what it says. Uh, it says the people were very attentive to hear him in verse 48. Verse 47, he taught daily in the temple. Now notice the chief priests, the scribes, and the chief of the people, they were wanting to destroy him. That's that group. 
But the common people, what does it say? They were very attentive to hear him. Chapter 21 and verse 31, it says that all the people, all the people came early in the morning. Now that would have been early, all right? Like early in the morning at the tomb, at the rising of the sun. It's very, very early. They're eager to hear. Mark 12, 37 says the common people heard him gladly. John 12, 29, after the same incident at around the same time, they say, the Pharisees stare at this and they say, well, we're wasting our time letting this happen. The whole world's gone after him. You see that? That's the common people. But meanwhile, those others I talked to you about, what are they doing? Well, it says there that we read in that verse 47, the chief priests, the scribes and the people of the people, they sought to destroy him. And what they did is they got together and one by one they circled around the Lord Jesus, you know, closing in on their prey, looking, they're just looking for a chink they can get in. And all of them, all the groups attacked him one by one. First of all, this group, and these are the rulers of the darkness of this world, that's what they are. This is the, <laughs> this is the judgment. God, he's going to bring judgment to this very world that are judging him. This is the world of the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Well, they're the Pharisees. They're the leading sort of religious people of the day. But they're the ones that actually liked Herod. I mean, the Jews were splintered into so many groups. It was unbelievable. This was a group who liked Herod ruling over them. And the others hated it. All right? There was revolt and all sorts of things. However, these are the Herodians. They like it. So they come along and they say, excuse me, but is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? Now, you've only got to say one wrong thing here, and they'll race off to Caesar and say, uh-uh, this man's just causing trouble for you. They get Rome on their side. You see the politics of the whole thing? Of course, the Lord Jesus takes the money, and he, he just answers it with that absolute beauty and leaves him silence. That's the Herodians failed. I can't go into the detail. You read it for yourself. And then the Pharisees came along. Now, they're the, they're the ruling class of the whole of the religious setup. They know what's good, right, and wrong. And so they say, well, <clears throat> you know, we're the authority around here. By what authority do you do these things? Oh, if we can just, if you'll just come out and say that he's got to unseat us and we'll start, we'll start the politics rolling here and we'll, we'll have something to get, something to grip. He doesn't do any of that, does he? <laughs> he doesn't do that. He answers that beautifully. But then the next lot come and they're the Sadducees, all right? So we've had what? The Herodians, the Pharisees. Now we've got the Sadducees. The Sadducees are, again, all part of the ruling religious class. They didn't believe in the resurrection. All right? That's the one thing they didn't believe in, was that there was going to be a resurrection. I don't know, when we were children, we used to learn, just chanted off, you know, the Pharisees were fire, you see, and the Sadducees were sad, you see. Why were the Pharisees fire, you see? Because they thought they got salvation by their works, so they were far away from the truth. And the Sadducees, they were so sad, you see. Why were they sad, you see? Well, because they don't believe in the resurrection. So they got no hope. It's still true, you know. Very simple, but it's very true. And they do, they get, they're really clever. They say, well, we will give the Lord a, a problem to solve about resurrection. And when he finds he can't solve it, it'll just be shown to be true that the resurrection's a load of rubbish and what he's teaching is rubbish and he's not going to rise from the dead either. And they come up with this absolutely fantastic curly situation where they say there's a man, there's a family, and there's seven men in the family, seven brothers, right? Seven. And the law of Israel was if a man married a wife and died before there was any children, 
then the second, right, the brother, would take the wife to raise up seed because they had to preserve their inheritance, the land that belonged to that family. And that's what it was. I said, well, do you know what happened? <clears throat> there were seven brethren, seven men in one family, and the first one took a wife. She died. There was no children. And then they said, you know what happened? The second one did his duty and took her as wife, and he went and died, and there were still no children. And the third one, he did his duty, and he took her and died, and there were still no children. And the fourth one, and there were still no children. And the fifth one, there were still no children. And the sixth one, and there were still no children. And the seventh one, there were still no children. And last of all, the woman died. I'll bet she did. You have to feel sympathetic for her. Anyone that got stuck with seven men out of one family. All right? Now, <laughs> but you see how ridiculous... You, you, do, do you really think that that was an actual family that had actually happened? This is the academic, you see. He's coming up with, oh, yes, but we've got to get to the finer nuances of this. Let's tease it out a bit. Let's see. What if you had... What if you had... And I'll tell you what, if you get involved, pardon me putting it bluntly, with the academics and the theological colleges today, and you discuss the basic principles of right and wrong, they will always come up with, what if? I'm sorry to say it so bluntly. And start introducing, this could happen, this might happen. What have they got to say about that? And what your, the principle you're stating, right? It doesn't fit this particular case, so therefore the principle's rubbish. No, no, no. Now that's the technique they're using. Okay? The Lord answers it. And they were left sort of going, gonna, gonna, you know, looking rather stupid at the end of the day. <clears throat> so you've got the Herodians. That's what they're doing. These are the rulers. These are the darkness of this world. The Sadducees, and if that's not... A, and the Pharisees. But, of course, we haven't, we've forgotten the scribes. The scribes, they wrote the Talmud. They were the experts at writing out the law. They knew the rules, the regulation. They were really the reliable, the nitty-gritty people, the detailed people. You know, the people that are always get in the way of anything ever being done because they're only ever interested in the way it should be done, not the fact that it's got to be done, <laughs> all right? There's a lot of them in the world. Government's full of them, right? Every department. Ever rung up? What do you get for the answer? No. What do you get for the answer? Oh, another form. What do you get for the answer? I told how to do it. Never told how to do it. Just told what you can't do. That's the scribe, you see. He's like that. He knows it all. So he says, oh, <clears throat> he tempts the Lord Jesus, and he said, well, I'll question him on the law. He's bound to get this wrong. Which is the first and greatest commandment of all? What are the greatest commandments of all? And the Lord answers it like that. Read it for yourself. And the poor fellow that did the other, he said, well, yes, well, you've answered well. <laughs> what else can I say? Now, that's what they do. What are they doing? They're looking for a chink, right? They, they, they want to find an accusation. They want to find somewhere where they can attack. They've got no clear reason. They've got no justice in their side, right? They've got hate and they've got envy. They've got all of that. But they haven't yet got what they need. And they've got a problem. And I want you just to get this problem. It's a big problem they've got. They fear the people. They want to move in and destroy the Lord. But they can't do it because the people are in so much in favour of him. And if they move, they'll have the people against them. They can have a tumult. You get a tumult in Jerusalem and the, uh, and the um, <coughs> Romans will be down on them in a flash. All right? They're going to lose the whole thing. And so they have to carry on circling, how can we do it? We fear the people, we want him dead, but we don't want to do it at the feast, because if we do it at the feast, all the people will see. Do you know what they did? They did it at the feast, because that was the exact time God intended it to be done. We'll see that later, right? Getting the picture, though. So they're circling around, and then one day they find exactly what they wanted. Do you know what you need when you're stuck? You need a traitor on the other side. 
And that's the story of Judas. I'll just read it to you and we'll stop there. Luke 23, we won't go into the details, we can't, with time. But it says there in Luke 22, and this is now at the very end of the week, after the whole week of trying to find the chink, they get exactly what they want. And it says here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, the Passover, see we're at the end of the week, we're the last days approaching, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being one of the twelve. Satan entered into him. He went his way, communed with the chief priests and the captains, how he may betray him. Satan has made his last climactic move. He has found what he wants to launch his final assault. And in those verses that we'll read next time, you'll see how hell and all its forces prepared for the destruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, and on the very same night of his betrayal, the Lord Jesus sends Peter and John and says, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. What we'll see is the preparation of hell and the preparation of heaven. We will see the machinations of Satan and the victory, the absolute victory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the tragedy of the betrayal and the end of Judas. Well, I'll leave you with that. It's like an overall picture to gather what comes to us. We're going to move now from the last week, right, to the last night in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.